Yeah, and, you know, I think that it, it, people like to frame intermittent fasting as being new and novel. Mm -hmm. And I like to remind them that it's something that has been part of us you know, from the beginning of time, because we would not have sustained ourselves as a species if we couldn't go without food. Mm. You know, our bodies are the exquisitely attuned to be able to use fat as a stored source of fuel. Unfortunately, in our hedonistic modern day lifestyles, we've been conditioned to believe that sleep is not important, that eating hyper palatable, highly processed foods is healthy, that being sedentary is normal, that not sleeping is acceptable, and not being physically active. We've gotten so far off base. And intermittent fasting, I think, in many ways is one of many strategies that people can utilize to harness better metabolic health. Welcome to Hone In with me, Saad Alam. This is a podcast that goes deep into topics that help you live longer and smarter. Each week, we'll deliver science-backed advice from the world's leading experts in nutrition, health, technology, fitness, relationships, and mindset. We cut through the BS to get you real answers and solutions. So let's hone in. I couldn't agree with you more that if people just slept eight hours, learned how to manage their stress, drank some more water, walked a little bit more, and learned how to cut the refined carbohydrates, their life would actually be fine. Yeah. I actually truly believe the majority of people would be in a great place. Yeah. But your kind of calling is around inter intermittent fasting. Like that is the thing that you really believe in from the bottom of your soul. Yeah, and, you know, I think that it, it, people like to frame intermittent fasting as being new and novel. Mm -hmm. And I like to remind them that it's part of all the major religions. You know, there is some part of fasting as a practice, as a spiritual practice. It is something that has been part of us, you know, from the beginning of time, because we would not have sustained ourselves as a species if we couldn't go without food. Mm -hmm. You know, our bodies are the exquisitely attuned to be able to use fat as a stored source of fuel. Unfortunately, in our hedonistic modern day lifestyles, we've been conditioned to believe that sleep is not important, that eating hyper palatable, highly processed foods is healthy, that being sedentary is normal, that not sleeping is acceptable, and not being physically active. And it's not even going to the gym, it's just people are sedentary all day long. Mm -hmm. And that is not a that is not an alignment with who we are as individuals. And so I think that we've gotten so far off base. And intermittent fasting, I think in many ways, is one of many strategies that people can utilize to harness better metabolic health. Talk to me, and I think maybe at the highest level, help educate us on what is intermittent fasting and when you do it, what is actually happening in your body? Yeah, so it's an important question. So intermittent fasting is as easy as eating less often. That mm -hmm. is really what it is at the basis. It is eating less often. When we're not eating, there are so many minor and major things that can go on. We have a reduction in inflammation. We've improved biophysical markers. So for many people, when they start fasting, they have better uh, lipids, they have better glucose, better fasting insulin, et cetera. Um, you reduce your risk of certain types of neurocognitive disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, which as I get older, I get worried, more concerned about those things, wanting to avoid them as much as possible. We know that it taps into this innate process of autophagy, this waste and recycling process that goes on behind the scenes. In an unfed state, our body has the ability to purge and get rid of disease, disordered organelles, mitochondria, et cetera, that have the potential to go on and create disease. Um, we know that if you fast long enough, you can also 
also get some digestive benefits. So things as simple as bloating, but all the way up to, if you fast long enough, stem cell activation, changes in telomere length, which are the anti-aging benefits, and everything in between. But one of the most impactful things that many people notice fairly quickly is just improved cognition, Mm -hmm. more mental clarity, more energy, because they're not wasting time digesting food. Their body can actually break down fats and it can break them down into fatty acids. If there's a different process that goes on, they can break them into ketones and you can actually have diffusion of ketones across the blood-brain barrier which helps with the mental clarity piece, helps with the brain energy piece, helps with the cognition piece. And so those are the, you know, more high level things that I think about, but autophagy is definitely one of those, you know, $15 words, but one that I think most people can understand. You just get rid of what doesn't belong. You're throwing out the trash. I remember I had the most difficulty fasting when I first started until someone described to me what happens over the course of the first two hours, then four hours, then six hours, eight hours, and something magical happens between the eight and 12 hour mark. And then if you can make it past that, that's when you're really like in an exciting place. Yeah, so I mean, at the very beginning, you're giving yourself some degree of digestive rest. You know, up until about 12 hours, it really is digestive rest, but it's a reduction in bloating. There's something called the migrating motor complex Mm -hmm. that is important for acting as a janitor in the digestive system. It's kind of sweeping things forward. It's almost like it's getting rid of debris, potential parasites, things that we've been exposed to. And when we're eating more frequently than every four to five hours, you're shutting down your body's innate ability to tap into the migrating motor complex. And this is something that I think even a lot of clinicians forget about, that this is the way our bodies are designed to thrive, to give it time to kind of push things through. When you're not eating as frequently, you're getting better stabilized blood glucose. Um, Many people may not realize that when you eat food, depending on what types of macronutrients you're eating, whether it's protein, fat, or carbs, has a different impact on that blood sugar response. And so over time, if you're allowing your blood glucose to come down, insulin secreted to bring your glucose to come down, people will have that improved mental clarity, they'll have more energy, they won't get hangry. And so, you know, that that variation from four to five to six hours longer can be beneficial. But right around that 12 hour mark is when people will say like, oh, I have so much less bloating. I didn't realize that that was normal. Or they have a lot of constipation or diarrhea. They have alterations in their kind of bowel habits. When we're talking about like the big, you know, benefits, if you look at the research, autophagy is really upregulated the longer you're fasting. So you're not getting autophagy at 12 hours, but closer to 18, 20, 24 hours, the process is starting to kind of unwind itself. And so I think for a lot of individuals, they'll say, oh, I can't fast for more than 12 hours, so I'm not getting any benefits. And I'm like, listen, digestive rest is an important one because we as a culture have just gotten very accustomed to eating far too frequently, yep. far too much and eating the wrong types of foods, which is eroding our metabolic health amongst a myriad of other problems. When you've practiced intermittent fasting, are you a 8-16 kind of person? Are you a 12-12? Are you a 16-8? What is the, the best thing for you? And then also, how is it different for men and for women? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I'm a very much an intuitive faster. So I fast based on how I feel, how hard I've worked out at the gym, how good is my sleep? Because the one thing about intermittent fasting that we haven't mentioned is that it's a hormetic stress. Mm -hmm. So just like exercise, cold exposure, heat exposure, et cetera, 
it is hormetic stress for the body. So it's figuring out, you know, where is your kind of, where where do you need to be challenged? Like that is that role of hormetic stress, beneficial stress in the right amount at the right time. And so when I'm thinking about men versus women, obviously uh, women are a little more complicated because they have cycles, you know, up until they go through menopause. So I'll just make this qualifier. Men and menopausal women, women who've gone more than 12 months out of the menstrual cycle have a much easier time with intermittent fasting. Mm. I'll just make that blanket statement. Women in peak cycling years, so 35 and under, you know, even if they're choosing not to have children at that point in time, or they're having not choosing to have children at all, their body is exquisitely sensitive to the cues of nutrition and when they're eating and when they're not eating. So these women I tend to be more cautious with, especially if they are lean and active, because again, it's that hormetic stress, a little bit, you know, right amount of stress at the right time at, in the right frame of mind. So when I'm thinking about these women and even perimenopausal women, there are times in a menstrual cycle where women can kind of capitalize on fasting. And so this is the follicular phase when estrogen predominates. Again, big oversimplification. Day one of bleed week up until ovulation, day 14, if you have a perfect 28-day cycle. When estrogen predominates, this is when women can get away with a bit more uh, bit more fasting, more intense exercise. If they want to go lower carbohydrate or even ketogenic, they can get away with it. Estrogen is more insulin sensitizing. It is also the hormone that allows us to have a little bit more hormetic stress on board. Versus, you know, in the luteal phase when women are progesterone predominates and as they're getting closer to menstruation, if they have a 28, 30 day cycle, I usually say the last five to seven days of their cycle, that's not the time to be pushing the fasting. Maybe they're doing 12 hours of digestive rest that typically works well. So that's women in peak childbearing ages. Then perimenopause and menopause, here are the qualifiers got to sleep. Mm-hmm. Women become less stress resilient at this time in their lives. So what do most women do in perimenopause when they become weight loss resistant? They go harder, mm-hmm. more fasting, more exercise, more food restriction, yep. exactly, which just makes it worse. So the same thing applies in terms of where they are in their cycles. But then it's What's your stress like? Are you sleeping? Anti-inflammatory nutrition, because all of a sudden the foods you got away with eating in your 20s and 30s, it isn't quite so easy anymore. So sometimes women need to remove gluten or dairy or alcohol or sugar, really depends on the individual. And then really looking at strength training because north of 40, we are losing muscle mass. Sarcopenia is a real thing, muscle loss with aging. And so I oftentimes will remind individuals that this is the time to make sure you're not doing an excessive amount of hit or chronic cardio. This is the time to be doing the weight training. And if you don't know how to do the weight training, make sure you hire someone that can work with you. And then menopause, 12 months out of menstrual cycle, women, there's not as much hormonal flux. The stress, the sleep, the nutrition, the exercise piece still applies. But those women tend to have a much easier time. Now, unfortunately, what I find is a lot of the, you know, whether it's the bro science, you know, culture or the toxic diet culture that women kind of lean into, there are a lot of people out there that hide their eating disorders and intermittent fasting. So there, there's always that caveat of being conscientious that you're you're eating. Like mm-hmm. some people take fasting to an extreme and I'm like, I'm not saying don't eat. I'm just saying eat less often. Mm-hmm. So making sure people are able to make that distinction. But something happened as you were talking, which made me realize I can probably be a better partner to my fiance, which is I assume that she operates very much like me. What are the ways that I could actually support her with her health or her eating or if she wants to do intermittent fasting throughout her cycle? Like walk me through what that looks like. So day one is ble- is your first bleeding day. Yep. So your menstrual cycle has started. 
you know, day one through day five, you know, there's varying degrees of flow. She may be tired. She may, um, she may want comfort food. She may need to rest more. It really depends on the woman. You know, this is when estrogen is starting to rise, beginning part of the cycle. And so as we're heading into week one, this might be the time that she suddenly has more energy. She may be more interested in cuddling, being more intimate. Uh, she may be ready to go for that longer run. Uh, she may be more interested in um, adjusting carbohydrates. I don't know how much you and your your fiance cook together. You may notice that there's certain things, more, more protein, lower carbohydrate, more energy, kind of adjusting things. And as we're kind of getting closer to ovulation, which again, we're going to pick this pristine 28-day cycle that every woman probably does not have. And as we're got this escalation, we're getting this rise in estrogen, we're getting rise in testosterone. She may be more interested in being intimate. She may uh, be more initiating of physical contact and sexual intercourse. And then after ovulation, you'll get a fall in estrogen. You'll get this rise in progesterone that will kind of ebb and flow as you're entering the luteal phase. This is a time when a lot of women are more interested in um, relaxation activities. And this is actually, interestingly enough, if you look at the research, they need about 150 to 200, 100, 200 more calories right before their menstrual cycle starts. So as we're kind of in that second week of the luteal phase, but they may, may be more drawn to restorative yoga. They may want to do um, Pilates. They are probably not looking to do a personal bath. Progesterone tends to be one of these hormones that can be sometimes bloating. Sometimes people can feel like a little bit moody. Um, they may feel like there's changes in their digestive system. They may start getting either constipated. They may have some diarrhea. I'm Maybe not every significant other is paying attention to those things. But as we're getting closer to our, when our menstrual cycle starts and there's a drop in progesterone, so this is what drives some of the symptoms of premenstrual syndrome. You may notice there's more anxiety, more depression, poor sleep, and that is a direct reflection of the drop in progesterone. So helping your partner when they're saying to you, I feel like I'm moody, I'm emotional, I don't know what's going on, and understanding that it is a byproduct of these fluctuations in progesterone. I always say progesterone is a wonderful hormone, but when it drops off, and some people do get very exaggerated uh, PMS symptoms, they can have like PMDD, uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Um, that can be like a very exaggerated response. It is a real entity, but helping them ensure that those that last week of their cycle, maybe they're having sweet potatoes or squash or more you know, low glycemic fruits because they will need a bit more carbohydrate to help with supporting their body during that luteal phase. And then their menstrual cycle starts and then the, this begins. Now, obviously, if a partner is on oral contraceptives, they may not get the same response because their hormones are kept deliberately very low because they're given synthetic um, hormones. But I think if your partner is having natural cycles, that is kind of a high level. It is right now menopause's moment across the country. Yeah. Talk to me about why you think that's happening and where do you think it actually goes? The irony is when I finished my nurse practitioner program at Johns Hopkins in 2001, that was the year before the Women's Health Initiative came out. And for maybe listeners who aren't familiar with the Women's Health Initiative, it was a very large study that was done. The, the way that the data was extrapolated changed the trajectory of hormonal therapies for perimenopause and menopausal females. It changed an entire generation of clinicians prescribing practices. 20 years. It hurt my mother's generation. Yep. And it pains me enormously, and I have permission to say this, 
when I look at my mom and her sisters and my aunts, the impact of taking them all off of HRT has been significant and profound. And so, you know, I feel like my true life's work is helping educate women about their bodies because we are our own best advocates. And so why do I think the shame and the secrecy around the second half of a woman's life is is changing and shifting is because women want more for themselves. They're witnessing what's happening. We're seeing escalating rates of Alzheimer's. We're seeing really poor metabolic health in our older women. And so much of it has to do with the fact that we've been so fear-mongered about the role of hormones. It, in most instances, it's not creating breast cancer. You know, that's a huge misnomer and misrepresentation. For many women, it's the loss of these sex hormones that is driving loss of insulin sensitivity. It's impacting brain health. It's impacting heart health. It's impacting um, bone health significantly. And so I, I think that as my generation has entered this stage of life, Many of us are like, we aren't going to allow this shame and secrecy to continue. I will tell you, it feels like women across the country at the same time are saying the second half of our life shouldn't be the death sentence that a lot of our mothers experienced. Mm -hmm. The way the WHI study yes. was sensationalized to make you feel like if you took HRT, your chances of getting breast cancer was going to go through the roof when the reality is like, one out of a thousand people that take HRT have an increased incidence of breast cancer. But the reality is you don't look at the other side of it, which is all the women that didn't take HRT, the quality of life that they missed out on. Absolutely. And, and what's interesting to me is almost every day, no, every single day, my team and I field questions on, in email, social media, um, around our content, constant questions about the issue with estrogen causing mm -hmm. breast cancer. And I think it is absolutely critical that women are invited to have those conversations, that they are speaking to their healthcare provider. If your healthcare provider isn't willing to have the conversation, then you need to find the right person because it isn't just estrogen. It's progesterone, it's DHEA, it's pregnenolone, if that's appropriate for you, it's testosterone. There's no FDA approved as testosterone for women. That is criminal. And unfortunately, there's this mindset that, oh, it's just about libido. And I said, no, your testosterone is the get off the couch and go to the gym yes. motivating hormone. Yes. And I'll tell you a story, which I haven't talked about publicly, but I was on HRT and then I was on way too much. The dosage and the physician I was working with, it was not a good match. And so I had to stop HRT for a couple months and get this washout. And I'll never forget this. So I stopped the estrogen and the testosterone in conjunction with my new doctor with their full blessing, because it was like, let's just do a washout. I got on a plane, I got in the wrong seat, not once, but twice. Ooh. Got to my hotel, and I'm, and I'm a very detail-oriented person, so that concerned me. Then I got to my hotel, got off on the wrong floor, and thankfully I was, I was at an event with several other physician friends, and so they were like, okay, this is clearly this washout of, of testosterone and estrogen. And I thought to myself, how many women out there are experiencing these symptoms and they are led to believe they're gaslit yes. and led yes. to believe that something, they're supposed to do this naturally. Like you're, you're gonna get pushed off a cliff, your estrogen's gonna go to the floor, maybe your testosterone at about 25% of people will remain therapeutic, but not the majority of us. And your progesterone has been in the tank for years and you're supposed to just ride out all these symptoms. And 
I, I said, it, I'm so grateful I went through that because it just reaffirmed for me why it's so important that we're actively talking to women, making them aware of what's going on. I mean, to me, the cognitive piece is so important. I mean, that's a non-negotiable. You know, it's like I want to remain, you know, sharp and intact for the rest of my life. So going through that for that one week of my life was terrifying. Now, here's the truth though, right? Our medical system is trained by physicians um, that lived in a very different life. I mean, they say the half-life of medical education is eight or nine months, mm -hmm. which means like by the time, the year after you get out of med school, half of what you learned is obsolete. It is hard to find a physician that really knows what to do. Like I would mm -hmm. assume that the natural person I would go to is my, my OBGYN, right? And most OBs, they don't know this. No, and I can tell you that when I was in early, my early 40s, I remember saying to my GYN, my my period has gotten very heavy. Mm -hmm. And I just happened to have it started the day I was doing my annual exam. And she was like, oh my God, your period's so heavy. And then she said, but that's okay. Oral contraceptives, we'll do an IUD, we'll do an ablation. Stop or, you know, it. you're done having kids, Stop we'll just take it. your uterus. And I said, no, 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 and no. And I remember thinking, this is someone that's a friend and a colleague, and this is the best option they're offering me. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, that's when I did this deep dive into figuring like, okay, what exactly is going on? And then I remember saying, why didn't everyone, ever, no one ever talked to me about this. Not, you know, I, I trained arguably at one of the best, you know, universities in the country. No one ever talked to us about this. It's kind of like, you know, you go off and off a cliff in menopause or perimenopause is probably not even discussed in graduate school. You just think, oh, that's many years away. I don't need to worry about that. Hmm. So I think for so many people, they get little to no education. And the traditional allopathic model is really solely focused on symptoms. You know, you give a, a pill, you have an intervention to address a symptom instead of thinking like, what is actually driving this? So to your point, I think that most allopathic trained providers Unless they're in a very specific environment, I do have some colleagues that even after post WHI were still prescribing hormones. They were the minority. If you look at the rates of like prescriptions that dropped, and even for Premarin, which is garbage, uh, it dropped precipitously. You know, within that first year of WHI, because everyone was worried about lawsuits, and yep. that's what drives a lot of decisions in medicine is the concern about being sued. What do you tell the woman that's 36, two kids, husband travels, is constantly tired, she's chalking it up, what sh and they don't have access to a provider that is in the know? What do they do? Well, typically we refer them to a network of providers that are savvy. And I've kind of compiled a list of savvy people. Um, Thankfully, a lot of these individuals are now doing telemedicine, so they can at least get lab strong. Because I think that's a starting place. Mm -hmm. I think that's reasonable. I think what's unreasonable is some consumers will just get labs done. Because there are companies that will let them just get anything done, and then they don't have someone to interpret the labs. Because you know there are people that are the lay public who just happen to be incredibly knowledgeable about these things. They'll say, okay, well, my progesterone should be X. Most people aren't. Let's be honest. And there's certain hormones that need to be drawn on certain days. And I think that's also another another piece of the puzzle. So I, I think the challenge is finding someone that's going to, number one, test you properly. Because a lot of things can drive fatigue. Are you anemic? Is your thyroid underactive? Which is pretty common to yep. see at that stage of life. I mean, there could be a lot of other things that are confounding. It may not be that your hormone, you may, you may still be in a position where your hormones are properly balanced. 
Um, I think that's number one. But number two, you know, working with someone that's got functional integrative medicine experience, because that is the differentiator. That is where I've seen the best of allopathic and functional medicine come together when you work with someone that's knowledgeable. But I think those are the two things. Get tested, then work with someone that's going to be able to, you know, what are your goals? What are you interested in doing? Because some people want to do the full court press. Other people are super conservative. And as an example, um, Dr. Pam Smith, I went to a lecture that she gave recently. She works for A4M and she's one of these anti-aging pro-bioidentical uh, hormones physicians. And she was saying she's seeing a trend in women, so not men, but in women that are getting super physiologic dosing on testosterone. Mm -hmm. So way beyond like what their bodies would make naturally. And she's seeing early MIs, so early heart attacks in young women. So she was saying like, testosterone is great but women need so much less than men so teeny little. tiny yeah. right but because it's so potent and so i think that's the other differentiator and there's a lot of like what i refer to as pill mills right now so many and that is a disturbing trend because you have individuals who are looking to make a very profitable kind of experience where they're dropping pellets left and right and pellets can be wildly unpredictable i mean that's that's what i'll say about pellets that it's it's been my experience. They can they can be very therapeutic in the right hands, but more often than not, when people are are creating these like pill mills as we call them, uh, sometimes that ends up not working out to the benefit of the patient. Maybe they feel good at first, but then they're stuck with this um, subcutaneous pellet that's underneath the skin that they can't do anything about until it kind of the can it stops releasing the drug, <laughs> stops releasing the hormone. I think that my whole background being in critical care and cardiology lends itself to being cautious and careful uh, because women deserve to have comprehensive labs mm -hmm. prior to institution of anything. Otherwise, you have nothing to compare it against. I mean, not to mention the fact maybe someone has liver function abnormalities, maybe, and you're going to put them on testosterone and all these other things. And I probably would lean towards being a little bit conservative. Ultimately, that's going to benefit the patient the most because you're going to have a better sense of their past medical history, their family history, what other medications, supplements. I, I just look at it as a safety thing. What's best for the patient? I used to always say, what's best for the patient? Mm -hmm. That's where you have to practice. That's good to hear, by the way. So I'm going to Turn it real quickly back to IF for a second yeah. again before we close out. People think that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And my stomach thinks that too. Every <laughs> single night when I go to sleep and when it's like 5 a.m. and I jump up for the gym, my stomach is saying, put some food in me. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there's a, there's, there's a couple different ways I could take this. Breaking your fast is the most important meal of the day. So whenever that happens, whether it's 10 a.m., 12 p.m., 2 p.m., 8 a.m., if you are an individual that is lean and very physically active, you may actually need to break your fast earlier. I think the context of where I get concerned about breaking your fast is that the kind of modern trajectory of breakfast foods in this country are hyper-processed, hyper-palatable carbohydrates, which are doing nothing for us. If mm -hmm. 92 to 93% of Americans are not metabolically healthy, the concept of fasting is a good one and then abstaining from eating processed carbs. But if you sit down and have a breakfast and say to me, before I go to the gym, I want a protein shake, whey protein shake, or I need to eat after I get done from the gym because I'm hungry, I'm going to have bacon and eggs or avocado or whatever it is you're going to have. Protein-centric meals are always going to be a good thing. So when we're talking about that traditional Kellogg's, cornflakes kind of breakfast, that's garbage. However, breaking your fast 
at any time during the day, I think is absolutely fine. And if you are very physically active and you're hungry, don't not eat. You know, that's always the concern is that sometimes the message about fasting is, you know, more hormetic stress, eat less. And, I'm, and I always say nourish your body. That is the most important thing you can do. And that's such an interesting point, right? Because I think very often when we get into these lifestyle modifications, we tend to look at the book or exactly what the black and white definition is. And the really experienced people actually say, listen to your body. In your mind, what does that mean? It really embraces bioindividuality. Mm-hmm. So it's the understanding that intrinsically each one of us may need to do things a little bit differently. And that is uncomfortable. A lot of people are like, I want you to tell me exactly what I need to do. And I say, listen to the intuition of your body. Like, let's say you went to the gym today and you lifted really heavy at a personal best. You may need a wider feeding window. You mm-hmm. may need more food. You may need more protein. You may need, may need more carbohydrate during your day. And so I think it's giving people permission to intuitively listen to their bodies if they're capable of that. Some people are still at a point where they're leptin or insulin resistant and they have to really work on the basics. But I would say if you're someone that is insulin sensitive, metabolically healthy, figuring out like, do you need to put yourself to bed earlier? Is this a day you need to up your carbohydrate intake? Is this a day you need to take a break and not go to the gym? I mean, it is that simple to kind of check in with yourself and say, okay, Today, I need to do less. For an example, yesterday didn't hit my protein macros. So today, we're going to have a steak dinner. So I'm like, you know, really, it can be that bio individual figuring out what your body needs intrinsically on that given day and time. Last question What are the non negotiables in your life? Like, what's your health stack that you, if you can only keep three things, Ooh. three things and three things only, what would they be? Um, I would say, number one, a connection to nature. And I know many people think that sounds woo-woo, but understanding what is going on with our connection to nature, the autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic, most of us are sympathetic dominant. Our bodies think we're being, you know, it's this fight, fight, or flee uh, kind of mentality. So connection to nature, because that always makes a big difference for me. The older I get, the more I, I crave it. You know, whether it's walking outside with my dogs, it's something we do every day. I would say number two, um, as simple as it sounds like hydration. I mean, I drink a lot of water. I drink a lot of electrolytes. It makes a huge difference in my energy levels, my sleep quality. Mm-hmm. And then number three is sleep, not a sexy topic. But I've never thought so much about my sleep as I did in middle age. And now all of a sudden I would say it's an art form. So yep. all the things I do to make sure I get a really good night of sleep. Like last night I slept a little less than normal, but my deep sleep was like an hour and 45 minutes, which is pretty good for the stage of life I'm in. Deep sleep, that that's good. So, so listen, you've been amazing. Um, I feel like I could have talked to you easily for another two hours. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks for listening into this episode of Hone In. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe. And hey, if you have a minute, drop a comment below with your biggest learning, your insights, your takeaways from this conversation. I would personally love to hear from you. Tune in each week for more answers to questions, solutions to problems, and tangible advice that you can apply to your life to live smarter, stronger, and longer. One more thing before you guys leave. This is important. The Honan Podcast is intended as general information. Our purpose is to educate, inspire, and support you as you live a healthier, longer life. The use of information on this podcast is not, and I repeat, not 
intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, medical, or mental health professional, and it should not serve as diagnosis or treatment. If you are suffering from a psychological or a mental health condition, please seek help from a qualified health professional. Thank you so much for listening to us.